0: and trying to highlight different points. As we come to the Gospel of Matthew and the narrative of the resurrection this morning, I want to suggest that what Matthew highlights for us is two perspectives to the resurrection. Two perspectives. You see, the resurrection demands a response. And the only two options are to follow or to reject Jesus as Lord. Lord to follow or to reject Jesus as Lord. Some of you might have heard the story, I'm not sure where it originated, but I believe Larry King has said it and some others, that they were asked if they could meet any historical figure and ask them a question, who that person would meet. And it's been said they would speak with Jesus and they would ask Him, did you really rise from the dead? Because that, is the point on which all history hinges. That changes everything if he really rose from the dead. I want to suggest that Matthew is not offering to us the opportunity to ask Jesus. Instead, he's already told us whether he has risen from the dead or not. And it is the point on which all history, but also every one of our individual lives, hinges. How we respond to the resurrection of Jesus. Matthew seems to lay out two groups of people. Both of them are near to the events of the resurrection. Both of them are very aware of some of these things that are taking place, but the interesting thing is that these two groups respond in entirely different ways. And for the sake of contrasting these groups this morning, we will call one outsiders to the resurrection and one insiders. This is Not an attempt to be antagonistic or hostile, but it's simply to illustrate these two groups. One is aware, but does not respond in faith. They are outsiders to the resurrection. But there is another group. They're insiders. They respond in faith to the work of God. They are open to what God wants to do. And throughout the sermon this morning, I want you to know I'll be I'll mention some details throughout related to the trustworthiness of Matthew's account of the resurrection i realize and many of us realize that these are some of the things that are these are the things that are questioned today it's so wonderful to me that as we come to this issue of the resurrection god wants us not only to engage our hearts in the emotion of singing and exalting and worshiping jesus but also wants us to engage our minds in the reality the truth that jesus really did rise from the dead and people really did see him And friends, if we are to be intellectually honest this morning, we must make a decision whether we will believe and follow Jesus as Lord or we will outrightly reject Him and say, I will not follow Him as Lord. Children, I want to remind you of a story. Many of you have probably seen the movie or read the book about the Chronicles of Narnia. Have you heard that? Children, you've read that book or heard the story? Do you remember that Lucy is the first one to find Narnia? Do you remember that? And do you remember that she goes and tries to tell her brothers and sisters and none of them believe her? They think she's crazy or they think she's lying. Well, this is what happens with the resurrection. Some believe and some do not. But if you remember the rest of the story, her brothers and sisters go to the uncle, the professor, right? And they say, she must be crazy, and, or she must be a liar. And the professor says, has she lied before? And they say, no. You can look at her and tell she's not crazy. And the professor says, well, the only option is she must be telling the truth. It must be real. And it's the same with the resurrection. So... What is it, as we begin this morning, to be an outsider to the resurrection? We will begin in verse 62 of chapter 27, and we'll read through chapter 28. So if you'll bear with me in a bit of a lengthy narrative this morning, we'll begin in verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he is risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it secure, as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came, and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men, corpses. But the angel said to the women, "'Don't be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified.' He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. He sounds like a British man. It, it's, it's really karate It's not a British word. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to De- Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave them a sufficient sum of money and said, Tell people, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee and to the mountain in which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, to the end of the age. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word that gives us instruction about your work. God, we pray that you would give wisdom to our hearts and our minds this morning, that we might behold the glory of your resurrection power. Father, that we might behold what it is you would want to do in our lives every single day as you remain with us always. Jesus, open our hearts and our minds to believe you and to trust you as Lord. In your name, amen. Amen. What is it to be an outsider to the resurrection? First, I would suggest that outsiders are stubborn to the work of God. Outsiders are stubborn To the work of God. You see this first in verses 62 through 66. You see, before the resurrection has even taken place, before anything has even happened, the Jews have made up their minds that if anything happens, it can't really be a miracle of God. There has to be some other explanation. It says that they go to Pilate and say, this man said after three days he will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest, and here's their plan, and here's what will be their lie, his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. And they say the last fraud will be even worse than the first. And so Pilate tells them, well, you've got a guard of your own. Go, make the tomb secure, seal it, do whatever you need to do. And so, what these men do is they reject the resurrection. They've got it made up in their minds that it's impossible that God would do something miraculous here. They're confident that if anything happens, there's got to be another explanation than God really brought him from the dead. There's got to be another explanation. You know, on one level of application here, it might not be for the same purposes, But we find this rejection of the supernatural frequently in our day. There's the the circular argument, it didn't happen because that doesn't happen. And so people have made up their minds that the resurrection is impossible before they even know anything about it. And I would just say that it'd be a shame to miss the truth because of a falsely held assumption that that doesn't happen. So if there are some in here who doubt these things, a skeptic or whatever you may be, I would just encourage you this morning to explore this possibility that it could be that someone really did rise from the dead. You see, these outsiders are stubborn to the work of God. They resist it. It is completely impossible that God would do such a thing but there are other levels of application here you so see you'd be quick for uh, Christians could be quick to say well that's not me but Christians need to be careful about having their minds made up about the way God works we need to be open to unexpected displays of god's leading of god's conviction of sin or whatever it might be the point is that these men were stubborn to anything that god might do that would be outside of their understanding. And and the second display of this, that they're stubborn to this work of God, is what happens to the soldiers when the angel appears. You see in chapter 28, in the first few verses, it says, there was a great earthquake. An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And it says his appearance was like lightning. But for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. It literally says they became like corpses but the interesting thing here is the contrast again Matthew's presenting a contrast between those who are outside and those who are inside the interesting thing is they become like corpses but the women who seem to see the angel while they're surprised and they're afraid the angel says to them don't be afraid You see, there seems to be a way in which God will interact with people who are open to his working, but a different way that he works with those who are completely closed off to his working. To the guards, the angel says nothing. They just become stone cold. But to the women, he says to them, don't be afraid. And he begins to share with them this good news. You see, God approaches the women who are open to His work. They're surprised, but they're open to whatever God would do. But these men who are closed off, their minds are closed. They're not even open to it. They say nothing to them. Nothing to them. You see, people who are hungry for the work of God will find it, friends. But those who are stubborn to it will not find the working of God. So I would just ask you this morning as we explore this narrative, are you even open to what God might do? Is your heart even sensitive to the possibility that God would want to work in your life through His Son, Jesus Christ? That He would want to reveal Himself to you? I would urge you this morning that your heart would be tender and open to whatever God might want to do. Well, despite outsiders being stubborn to the work of God, we need to see that they still play a role in the divine drama. We would think, well, these people are resisting God. They're, they're making up this plan and this lie to tell in case Jesus does rise from the dead. And in fact, they do spread this lie. But what Matthew teaches us very subtly is that these people are still being used by God, even for His glory despite their resistance to him. You see, outsiders don't thwart God's plan even when they try to. Instead, they magnify God's power. This is what's incredible here. Look at the end of um, verse 66. It says, they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. You see, they seal the stone, they place a guard, it's it's actually a group of guards, and they make it virtually impossible for anyone to get in or out of the tomb. They're trying to prevent anything crazy from happening. But what's interesting here is that Matthew is very intentional in his language. The language is an echo of Daniel 6, 17. It provides... This continuity to the working of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see, Daniel was in trouble for praying to the God of Israel when a command had been issued that no one should pray to anyone except the king of Syria, Darius. The king of Persia, excuse me, King Darius. So Daniel, because he prayed to the God of Israel during this time, was thrown into the den of lions. Many of you remember this story. But listen to the verse. It says, A stone was brought and placed over the opening to the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring. You see, Daniel was a righteous man who was thrown in and he was sealed in with a group of lions, expected for sure to be dead the next morning, eaten by the lions. But instead, we know the end of the story. Daniel called out to the king the next morning and said, God shut the mouth of the lions. Christ was the righteous son of God. And while he was sealed into a tomb, he got out. And the guards didn't even know it. You see, Jesus leaves the tomb without even being noticed. You know, it says that the angel moves the stone away, but the interesting thing is that Jesus is already out of it before they move the stone away. Evidently, our resurrection bodies will be able to move through walls and stuff. It's going to be pretty sweet, right? We don't know a lot about Jesus' risen body, but it seems very different from his earthly body. He didn't have the same limitations. In another gospel story, it says that the disciples were locked into a room. They were fearful of the Jews, and Jesus just appeared to them in the room. And so in the same sense, somehow he moved out of the tomb before the guards even knew it. It's when the angel rolls the stone away, they become fearful and they realize, well, something's happened. So, it's interesting that these people, these guards, who are trying to work against God's plan, instead of actually being successful, they just magnify God's power. They seal the tomb and do everything they can, but God still manages His way out. The point here is that Evil is still under the sovereign reign of God. It never causes God to be flustered. And you see this in the story of Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph? No matter the intentions of his brothers who sell him into slavery, no matter the intention of Potiphar's wife who tries to get him in trouble, and even others, God uses workers of evil to move Joseph to the head of Pharaoh's house. Friends, what we need to see today is just what was happening in that day. God uses these people who are working evil to magnify his name even more. You've studied it in Romans. God raises Pharaoh up, hardens his heart, so that he might reveal his glory even more. Friends, and those who are trying to work against God, don't you know that you can't? In a sense, you're just a puppet in his hand. He uses all these things for his glory. Christians, we don't need to be frustrated by evil while we long that it would cease. We need to trust God who is over all things and who magnifies His name and His own wisdom. So, outsiders, they're stubborn to the plans of God, but they're still used in the divine drama. And then lastly, in considering the outsiders, outsiders will avoid the truth at all costs. Outsiders avoid the truth at all costs. And what I mean here specifically is outsiders avoid the truth of the resurrection at all costs. They would rather s- spread a lie than confess that the resurrection really happened. Look at verses 11 through 15 in chapter 28. The soldiers leave, leave the tomb. And while they were going, the, you know, this guard went into the city and the chief priest and... They told them all that had taken place. And it says they assembled with the elders. And when they took counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And said, tell people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. this comes to the governor's ears, that's Pilate. We'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Pilate would have killed them if they found out about this. So they took the money and did as they were taught, as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. A comment, quickly, about the historical value of Matthew's gospel. Justin Martyr, in the 2nd century, about uh, 50 to 100 years after this was written, Justin Martyr, a Christian, says that Jews were continuing to spread the story that the disciples of Christ had stolen his body after he died Matthew's telling the truth this is a lie that began as as early as right after the resurrection what I would also suggest to you is that it's crazy to think those who doubt the historical value of the gospels you might say well Matthew's just making this stuff up why would Matthew give ammunition to the Jews why would he make up the idea that the Jews are spreading this lie if they hadn't already been spreading the lie You see, it was the occasion of the lie that caused him to say the Jews are spreading the lie. Matthew didn't make up that the Jews were spreading the lie. So Matthew speaks truthfully about this. The exchange of money here is really particular, and it's something that Matthew details carefully. It says that the elders gave them a sufficient sum of money. It's a a worthy amount of money. And it says later in verse 15, the soldiers took the money and did as they were directed. You see the elders holding it out, and then the soldiers buying, being bought with the lie. You know, this is reminiscent of Judas It's the same language as when Judas hands over Jesus for money. For money. You know, it would seem trivial to talk about money on the day of the resurrection, wouldn't it? But it's important to Matthew here. There's a responsibility on both sides. The the Jews are willing to just hand over money so that the news could not be spread that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Please, don't say anything about this. We'll give you the money, however much it takes, if you just tell them that the disciples really stole the body. You see, it's better to do that than admit the truth. And admit the truth that something really miraculous happened. But the soldiers are just as guilty as the elders. They receive the money. They take it. And while they're not developing the lie. The soldiers are becoming co-conspirators. Accomplices in the lie. Friends there's there's a wonderful application here. An important application. Be aware of the temptation to avoid the truth. While it might seem beneficial for you now to avoid the truth, the eternal cost is your own soul. In our own culture, it's difficult to embrace the truth because lies, they sell so well. Many workplaces want you to be willing to compromise values or stretch the truth to earn an extra dollar. In regard to religion, it seems that really the more audacious the claim, the, the better it'll sell, Right? I mean, we don't see things on the tabloid. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the risen Savior and Lord of all the earth. And He's judging all evildoers. Do you see that on tabloids? No, it it doesn't sell well. It's the audacious claims that sell well. Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and bore children who were half divine. Uh, Well, that sounds interesting. But it's not true. It's audacious. You see people treat faith like technology. We want the latest fad, but friends, that's not how faith, that's not how truth works when it comes to religion and faith. Recently, I was at a a conference at the seminary, and actually, uh, someone else told me about this aspect, but there was a woman who had written a a book on uh, the Bible, and she had said that the Bible actually has really, really loose sexual ethics, that that you, you can do basically anything sexually that you want. It, that It's very permissible in the Bible, whatever you want to do. She was a very liberal view of this. And, but a, a conservative was debating with her and says, you know, that sells really well, but it's not intellectually honest. It's even bad scholarship. And you see, this is what happens today. People write what sells well and not what's always truthful and right and this is what happens to these guards these outsiders they know that something has happened but they'd rather take what's good for them right now right now and so i would just ask everyone here are, are you taking what's good for you now or are you buying into what's really true even though it might cost you now We'll see that the disciples accept what's true even though it will cost them. So we see what it is to be an outsider. An outsider. They avoid the truth at all costs. They, they play a role in the divine drama, but it's, a very, uh, it's, a, it's not the role you want to be in. <laughs> Your stubbornness is used to magnify God's power. But what is it to be an insider to the resurrection? How do you respond as an insider? Well, insiders, again, as we saw earlier, they're they're surprised by the work of God, but they're open to it, and so they receive it. We see this with the women at the tomb. It says in verse five of chapter twenty-eight, the angel said to the women, "Don't be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay." Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. You know, there's something to the fact that the angel speaks to the women and not to the guards. And it seems to be because the women are open to God's work and what God wants to do, while the guards and these other stubborn-hearted people are not. So insiders are open to being surprised by the work of God, open to whatever he desires to do. Another point about the historical value of Matthew, quickly. Women, unfortunately, this is nothing against the women here today, but were not seen as very reliable sources during this time. In fact, women could never be used as witnesses in a court of law. They weren't reliable sources. So, what's the point? Well, if Matthew is trying to convince people that this stuff is true, he's not going to use women as his first witnesses. The fact that he uses women, is he's he's elevating them to a, a greater role than they've ever seen in this society. The fact that he uses women is a credit to the truth of what's going on here. He's not trying to get something by you. He's not trying to pull a fast one. He's telling you of accounts of what really happened. What really happened? There's great historical value here. He's truthful. So the women are open to the work of God. But also the insiders, they embrace truth despite the cost. You see, the outsiders, they reject the truth and avoid the truth at all costs. They'll do whatever they have to do to not accept what really happened. But insiders embrace the truth even though it will cost them. You see this with the women, but then with the disciples Later, First verse 9, it says Jesus met them and they came and took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. They worshipped him. You know, there's something that when we see Jesus, when they see Jesus, they throw off all their inhibitions. And they know that this is the Son of God. He was a man. This is a guy who lived his life as a man. Yet, when they see Him, they fall down on their feet, on their knees, and they worship Him. The disciples do the same thing. Verse 17, when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. They worshipped Him. You know, confessing to the resurrection of Jesus forces us to let loose of inhibitions and to bow down and recognize that He is Lord. That our life is not our own, but it belongs to the one who died and rose again. It, it was interesting during this period to, be, to say that your Lord was a, a man who was crucified. It wasn't necessarily something that you would go around boasting about. Your Lord was a man who died at the hands of the Romans through crucifixion as an insurrectionist. Yet I worship Him as exalted Lord, as King over all. There's something here about when we embrace the truth, friends, it it will cost us. The disciples were told, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross and die. They knew that embracing Jesus and worshiping Him meant they left their own life behind. It wasn't about them anymore. So insiders, they see Jesus and they embrace the truth of who He is despite what it will cost them. An interesting thing here though is that Matthew mentions these people who doubt. It says at the end of verse 17, some they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. Here's another point about the historical value. If you're trying to convince people that this stuff is true, you're not going to tell people that out of the 11 main guys who followed Jesus, some of them don't believe it. Some of them just doubted, struggled. If he's trying to convince people and pull a fast one on them, he's not going to say, well, some of them really struggled with it and they weren't sure. It's like saying, this is my product. Some of the time, it works all the time. But some of the time, it doesn't work all the time. You see, Matthew's not trying to pull a fast one. He is honest. Some worshipped him, but some doubted. Some struggled. Well, why do you think they doubted? Why do you think they were struggling? Well, do you recall the last time that The disciples and Jesus were what what happened last? The last time they saw him, he was dying on a cross. The last time they saw him, he was being interrogated by the chief priest and then by Pilate. The last time they saw him, he was being beaten and then he was carrying his own cross. You know what the disciples did did during all that period? They scattered like fleas or something. They just ran. Do you remember the scene where Peter denies Jesus the third time and then he and Jesus catch each other eye to eye and the rooster crows and it says Peter went out and wept. These are the last interactions between Jesus and his disciples when they abandon him. So, the disciples are going to meet Jesus for the first time since this point. He is risen from the dead, the thing he told them they, he would do, but they never believed. Can you imagine the emotions that some of them are experiencing? How, how's he going to respond to us? I disappointed him. I left him. I abandoned him. Can you imagine? I mean, some of us have experienced this emotion maybe when we've abandoned Christ with our own sin. But the disciples, they were intimate with him, yet they abandoned him. The wonderful thing about this is that doubting doesn't make them outsiders. These are still the insiders. And, and so in the same sense for us, doubting doesn't make us outsiders automatically. Jesus, he he isn't using his time to grumble with the soldiers or the Jews who are stubborn hearted. But he is sensitive to these really tender hearted doubters who really want to know the truth. But just struggle. They just have questions. I wonder if that's some of us this morning. Do we we just have struggles? Well, listen to how Jesus, Jesus, Matthew points us to this pivotal point in the narrative where Jesus approaches them in gentleness. He doesn't say it outright, but it displays His forgiveness and His welcome Welcoming them after their sin. It says, Jesus came and said to them in verse 18. You miss it right here. You miss it. But there are three verbs in the Greek where it it usually doesn't take three verbs to say Jesus said to them. But Matthew gives us three verbs where Jesus approaches the disciples, slowly approaches them, draws them in and draws near to them. And through this language, Jesus is welcoming the disciples back in. He's reinstating them as his people, as the workers, his disciples. You see, this is incredible if you if you just examine and and pull back a little bit and look at the whole scene. Jesus has died on the cross, and the disciples thought everything is over. It's done. Our Lord has died. What are we going to do? But now Jesus is risen from the dead and He draws them in and tells them what to do. His drawing them in is an extension of forgiveness, friends. The the cross means that He's not holding their abandoning against them. He forgives them. I wonder if you've abandoned Christ and need to experience His forgiveness. Friends, He's there. He's merciful. And he, He will come to you and He will reinstate you Make you His disciple. Instead of expressing anger, Jesus gently and subtly restores them. And then He says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go. You know, insiders know the risen Lord and they're sent on His mission. These points go together. When you know Jesus, you automatically will go on mission for him because that's what jesus is about the mission of making disciples of going but this phrase all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me it's it's an interesting phrase that matthew's using you know there's someone else in matthew's gospel that claimed to have authority over the kingdoms of the earth do you remember who that was it was satan Satan said to, Matthew, uh, to Jesus in Matthew 4, Worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms on the earth. And Jesus said no. Jesus rebuked him with scripture. Well the beautiful thing is, in what this passage displays is that Jesus instead of submitting to Satan goes the way of obedience to his father's will even to the point of the cross. And in going to the cross and dying has received far more than Satan could ever offer far more than Satan could ever offer. So no longer is it Satan who can say, I've got authority over this, but Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's Lord over all. You see, we we can trust Jesus' power, His authority over all things, over our lives and everything that happens in our lives. We can trust it. But we can also trust His example, friends, that as we resist Satan's false promises... We will give, be given far more through obedience to Christ. We will be given far more through obedience to Christ. Are you fearful of leaving your life of sin? Don't be fearful. Are you fearful of what you'll lose in leaving your life of sin and turning to Christ? Don't be fearful. The riches far outweigh everything you'll ever lose. Everything you'll ever lose. I would urge you this morning to follow the example of Christ, to turn from sin, to turn from Satan, and follow Jesus, the way of the cross, to even die and find at the right hand of God pleasures forevermore that far outweigh anything you can find in this world. Anything you can find in this world. Well, what is the mission? And we will close he says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are to make disciples. The church of the risen Lord is to make disciples. It's not converts. Be careful. It's not converts, it's disciples. And this means the disciples should expect no less of future disciples than Jesus demanded of them. And what did Jesus demand of those disciples? To die. To die. You know, we sometimes feel like we get off easy in the American church. We, we just have it a little bit easier. But friends, if we're to be a disciple, which is what he told his disciples to make, that means we must do what they did. We must die. We must die to ourselves to follow Christ. We won't get off easy. It should be a constant question in our minds. Am I holding on to my life or what I want? Am I letting Christ use me how He wants in His mission of making disciples of all nations? Listen, it says make disciples of all nations. There are so many excuses that we can make here. I'm so passionate about where I am. I don't think God has called me to go be a part of missions there. Friends, that's an excuse, and it's a bad excuse. Jesus said make disciples of all nations. That's how He's defined mission well or I give money I don't go well that's an excuse Jesus said make disciples of all nations to all his disciples he's called us all so there will be some who are called to certain places some are gifted givers and those are things to be celebrated but God has called all of us to be engaged in some way in making disciples of all nations and you know we have a team working in Uganda right now this is just how God's mission works We have a team in Uganda right now, and they'll work with those brothers and sisters there, and they'll come back and report to us about what God has done, and we will be excited, and it will reinforce our calling and our mission. It will challenge us, it will reignite passion in our hearts for God's kingdom. And this is how God works. This is how His mission works. And those who become disciples make more disciples. It's a multiplying effect. Finally, and I'll close, I know people are getting anxious some of us <laughs> me too me too insiders know Jesus abiding presence insiders those who witness the resurrection and who behold it and embrace it they know Jesus abiding presence he says behold i'm with you always to the end of the age you know this this comes from back in the old testament it, God would call out these young people to follow him or these people who felt very weak like Moses and like Joshua and say, you're going to be my messenger. You're going to lead my people. And Moses, Joshua, both would would feel incapable of doing what God wanted them to do. It was such a large task. And so you know what God would say? He would say things like, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go to Moses in Exodus 3.12. He says, Moses, I will be with you wherever you go. I'll be with your mouth. I'll give you words to speak. You see, it's God's presence that empowers us to carry out His mission. And it's such a beautiful way that Matthew has framed his gospel narrative for us with the notion of Jesus' everlasting presence with His people. In one twenty three, Jesus was called by the angel Emmanuel. You know what that means? God with us. He closes His gospel with Jesus saying, I will be with you to the end of the age. You see, we behold Jesus' presence among His people. Without His presence guiding us in the mission, empowering us for the mission, the mission fails and we fail. But He's promised to be with us every minute, every hour of every day, from now until eternity, to give us the strength we need to be faithful in His mission. Friends, this is his personal presence to each one of his disciples, but also his presence as we gather together as a body. Christ dwells in us, Christ empowers us, and it is the power and the presence of the one who's conquered death that goes with us as we seek to complete his mission. I pray that His presence to the believers here today would be comforting. That you would be reminded today that Christ dwells in you and goes with you as you seek to be obedient to Him. That the power of the risen Lord dwells with you as you seek to submit to Him. Have you failed? Have you you forgotten about His presence that empowers you, that that comforts you? Will you be reminded this morning? He is risen, and He's risen so that He might dwell with each one of us, among us. But also, to the skeptic, to the unbeliever, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever's going on, will you behold Christ this morning? What's holding you back from, from accepting and from embracing the truth of the resurrection of the risen Lord, the Son of God, who would forgive you of your sins and who would be with you to comfort you through the rest of your life and through eternity. I pray that you would embrace Christ. There are only two choices, remember. You embrace Christ and His resurrection. Or you reject him as Lord. There is no neutral ground. We pray you would embrace him. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for giving us this picture.